0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powadik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. My co-host today is Aaron Cameron, and we have a colleague from First National with us today, Jason Ellis. He's the Senior Vice President and Managing Director of our capital, Markets. He's also known as the Treasury Guy. So,
1: welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you for having me.
0: This is a first for us having
2: a colleague from First National on. We thought it was appropriate. Actually, it's a second. We had Dave Morrison. Oh, that's right. <laughs> episode two. I came <laughs> after Mo. Yeah, you came <laughs> after
1: Mo. <laughs> I'm leaving.
2: We spent. We actually that for a long time. That was our most popular episode about CMBS, which I suspect we'll touch on today. But Jason's expertise is is much wider than just the commercial mortgage backed securities mm-hmm. platform. Jason, why don't we start from the very beginning? Like, I did, You didn't you know go into grade nine in high school thinking, I'm going to be uh, working in a treasury department. Like, How did you get into this industry?
1: Right. Well, not only did I not go into grade nine thinking I'd bring to mortgages, I stepped foot into First National for the first time in 2004 for my interview with Stephen Smith, and I didn't even know what mortgage brokers were or that they existed. So to say that I got here by accident was probably an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> the path to where I am now started during my MBA. I went to McMaster and what took me there, I'd like to say was you know a lifelong dream of doing my MBA at McMaster, but the truth is I didn't get in at Western, which isn't a knock against McMaster, but the appeal was that it had a co-op program. And I had done two out of my three co-op sessions and neither of which were in finance. And I had this notion that I wanted to be in finance Now, I didn't know what finance was, I didn't know what that meant, but what I did do is I sent out applications to every bank, trust company, credit union, pension fund, mutual fund that I could think of in the hopes of securing summer employment because the last co-op term overlapped with the summer. So I kept careful track of the mail and received several FODE letters. I won't expand on the acronym if you're not familiar with it, but I did get one call Uh, And that was from RBC Dominion Securities. Actually, check that. It wasn't RBC yet. It was just Dominion Securities. And they were interested in interviewing me for the summer. I went and much to my surprise during the course of the interview, the woman offered me on the spot two positions, my choice. One was an assistant to a retail investment advisor. And I asked what that entailed. It was largely answering the phone, licking envelopes, that kind of thing. Uh, The second was on the repo desk. I asked her, of course what that was my mind turned of course to repossessing cars i'm sure that wasn't what it was about that's what i'm thinking about right now yeah she said that she didn't know what the <laughs> job was but she did know that it was on the fixed income trading floor and that was enough for me i was done you had me at fixed income trading so i agreed to take the role i guess a month or two later came time to start and I showed up, as told, at around nine in the morning, which, as it turns out, is the middle of the day on a fixed income trading floor. I found my way onto the trading floor, started tugging at people's shirt sleeves, asking them if they could point me in the direction of the repo desk. Eventually, I find my way to the corner of the room where I asked one of my soon-to-be colleagues if this was the repo desk. And they said, of course it was. And I asked after the manager who was running the, the desk, and they said, oh, he's off at a meeting, but uh, go ahead and have a seat. So they pointed me to his chair. Now, what I didn't know at that point was that the thing he hated more than anything else was a warm chair. <laughs> <laughs> so the next 10 minutes of my first day in fixed income go like this. The managing director shows up. I'm sitting at his desk. He takes one look across and says, who the f- are you? <laughs> my only response is, I'm, I'm Jason, the summer student. Anyway, I guess he had completely forgotten he'd agreed to have a summer student. And I spent the next two weeks sitting on the radiator that ran around the perimeter of the room. And my only job was to fetch coffee in the morning and the afternoon.
0: Which sounds like the job you were originally offered in the other position.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't far off. One of the highlights was International Food Week, where my only task was to get lunch from a different vendor, vendor every day. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was uh, an unceremonious beginning. The summer went well though, and at the end, well enough, and I think largely because I knew something about Lotus 123, you know, the the spreadsheet that came before Microsoft, if you're familiar with it. And it was pretty novel at the time. And so at the end, the guy who was running the desk sat me down. And I should clarify, over the course of the summer, I didn't go by Jason. I was simply known as Summer Boy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I was referred to as. There was a girl from Queens who was working on the money desk, money market desk adjacent. She was known as Summer Girl. Uh, she didn't have quite the sense of humor for it, though, so it didn't go over as well with her. Anyway, it gets to the end of the summer. Guy running the desk sits me down and says, so, Justin, it's been a good summer. I'm looking over my shoulder wondering, Justin? Who's Justin? <laughs> so he didn't know my name, but I'd made enough of an impression for him to offer me a full-time job. <laughs> and there began my illustrious career in fixed and you income. Were, you were no longer known as Summer Boy thereafter? No, I think Summer Boy stuck for a while. But So, uh, so here at First beginning. National,
0: our summer students are starting shortly. Are you, do you plan on treating them better than you were treated? Or is you it, know, uh,
1: in fairness, one thing I took away from my time on the trading floor was that uh, I would try to stop the train of abuse because there was definitely a history. If you read the book Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis. I did, yeah. I don't want to exaggerate things. It maybe wasn't quite Liar's Poker, but the environment on the trading floor in the mid-90s was still a pretty entertaining one. You know, it wasn't... You wouldn't go more than two or three days without shoe polish on your earpiece of your phone or shaving cream or some other nonsense.
2: <laughs> and it was very much my boss treated me that way. So therefore, I get to treat you that way.
1: Yeah, it was very much a locker room mentality. So you were expected to learn fast and to learn by yourself. There wasn't a lot of handholding. You know, one of the great things about First National, if you want to talk about cultures, is notwithstanding the fact that we're really entrepreneurial here it's a lot more collegial too. It, it seems like it's not sink or swim. It's, if you're sinking, throw your hand out and somebody will grab we'll it. help you. That said, ask me the same question twice and you're on thin ice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so there's a line, don't cross it. There's a
1: line. Anyway, I think the original question was about plans about being in the mortgage industry and everything happened by chance. So it came down just, you had two job offers,
2: picked one. And it it all started your life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then after about eight years at dominion securities, eventually RBC securities, eventually RBC dominion securities. I ended up in New York for the last part of my career with, with RBC. And my first son was born there. And after a couple of years, I think that my wife was getting itchy to move back to Toronto. She was a professional and is a professional and wasn't working while we were in New York. And I was ready for a change. So I ended up going to Manulife for a brief stint in the asset and liability management side. It was a big change from the trading floor to a huge organization like Manulife. So when I got the call randomly from a recruiter telling me about the opportunity at First National, which was at the time privately owned, small, entrepreneurial, the position was in a trading role. Wait, I thought, which year would this be? This would have been 2004. Okay. So 2004, I came over and I met Stephen. And eventually I met Maury. Stephen would tell you that he had a checkered past in terms of hiring decisions. And before hiring me, apparently Maury had told him, under no conditions are you to hire someone without me meeting them first. (laughs) And so Maury came in for my, my last interview with Stephen and he sat in the corner of the room with the newspaper open. And after about three or four minutes, he said, yep, yep, that's fine. If you like him, I'm fine with it, and walked out. So it was didn't a short- you, Didn't ask you a question? It was yeah. a short introduction. That's um, uh,
2: more he trusts his gut more often than not. And right. I think
1: Stephen and I finished the interview off at the Whistling Oyster, which used to be a- it used to be a gathering place for First National when it was still there. How many
2: employees were there? Do you,
1: do you remember Yeah, that? my employee number, I think, is something like number 310. But when you factor in turnover and the like, I think there were still only about 110 active employees when I started. And we had just expanded from half of the seventh floor here at 100 right, University.
2: Right, so it was early, still early on still in the year. Still early days, yeah. still
1: early enough that the Christmas parties were... The kind of thing that would happen at the Christmas party stayed at the Christmas party.
0: (laughs) For reference sake, I think we're just about to crest a 1,000 employees. Maybe Aaron knows better than I. Yeah, I think we have
2: now. And we just celebrated our 30-year anniversary. So you were joining, would have been year 16, right?
1: I could almost say that I've been here for about half half of First National's (laughs) history now. That was a really long origin story. Sorry. No, don't apologize.
2: I'm, um, I'm reading the mind of our listeners and half of them are going, so what is a repo desk?
1: Right. Well, and that will segue probably into a little bit about what we do here at First National and our hedging activity for our mortgages. But when one short sells a bond, so maybe as an introduction to what we do as a hedging activity here at First National, when we promise to lend a borrower a certain mortgage coupon, but we haven't yet completed that mortgage and sold it to an investor, we're exposed to interest rates going higher. We hold the promise to lend you the money at a certain rate. So in order to protect ourselves, we will short sell a bond. That is to sell a bond we don't own. Now, the catch is the guy you sold it to is expecting you to deliver the bond. Mm -hmm. So until such time as you actually cover your short and buy it back, you need to borrow it from somebody so that you can make good on your sale to the other side. That's what a repo is. It's a repurchase agreement. You're able to go to the repo desk, tell them, I'm looking for about $100 million worth of five-year bonds, And they will sell you their five-year bonds. You use the proceeds you received from selling the bonds Mm -hmm. in the cash market to pay the repo market. They will pay you a short-term rate of interest on your cash while you hold their bonds to make good on your delivery. Eventually, when your mortgage becomes funded, perhaps through a mortgage-backed securitization, you buy back your short bond position because you've now unwound your interest rate risk by funding it in the Mm -hmm. MBS market and you return the bonds to the repo desk, and the repo desk returns your cash.
0: My head's already spinning. (laughs) But I do understand what you're saying.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess the simplest way to put it is we're all accustomed to the buy low, sell high convention. This is sort of a sell high, buy low idea, because we all know, hopefully, that the price of a bond and the yield of a bond is inversely related. So I'm worried about interest rates going higher. So when I short sell a bond, as interest rates go higher, the price of the bond that I've shorted is falling. So when I buy my bond back in a higher yielding environment, I'm buying it back at a price lower than I sold it at. So I sold it at a price of 101 and I buy it back at a price of 100. I've made a dollar in exchange for taking the mortgage that I promised you, say, a 4% coupon on, but then had to fund into a higher rate environment.
0: And is the goal balance? Is that the ultimate uh, goal of hedging activities?
1: Yeah, here at First National, the objective is to, as much as possible, eliminate risk, not to add to it by taking flyers.
0: Where, you be, where you be seeking a profit with those activities.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen, from time to time, Stephen Smith, our CEO, co-founder and chairman, will wander into my office and say, you know, how do I know you're not a rogue trader? How do I know there's not something going on underneath the blotter there that I don't know about? And I remind him that, I'm not paid to be a proprietary trader. If I wandered into his office and said to him, guess what? I made a million dollars yesterday trading 10-year bonds. What's your reaction? He says, well, I'd fire you. Well, of course you would. You're not going to pay me a bonus. You're going to get rid of me. So there's no incentive to be a rogue trader. That said, Stephen did, in the months following the liquidity crisis, have a great trading idea. So if you remember the liquidity crisis of... 07 through oh nine, credit spreads started to widen out. And in some cases, it was appropriate. In other cases, it seemed ridiculous. Sorry, just keep going. But what do you mean by credit spreads? Oh, sorry. Sure. So uh, since it'll be topical to the story, let's talk about the Canada Mortgage Bond. Mm-hmm. Now, the Canada Mortgage Bond is very, is very, very closely related to the Government of Canada bonds. But it trades at a slightly higher interest rate, all else being equal, than the Government of Canada bond that differential you could call a credit spread. Now, it's a bit of a misnomer in the case of a Canada mortgage bond because the Canada mortgage bond, like the Government of Canada bond, is AAA and guaranteed explicitly by the Government of Canada. Mm-hmm. So to call it a credit spread seems a bit odd. You could talk about, a, say, a provincial bond, a province of Ontario bond. It would trade, all else being equal, at a yield slightly higher than the Government of Canada bond. That's the credit spread. Right. So it would be reasonable... To assume that a Canada mortgage bond, which is the government of Canada credit, which happens to be backed by a portfolio of mortgages on top of that, mm. mortgages that that are also insured mortgages, sure. wouldn't trade at much of a spread. And indeed it didn't. Back in the early days of the CMB, it traded... Within seven or nine basis points of the equivalent maturity Government of Canada bond.
2: Just to, let me just reiterate for, the, for those listening, the Government of Canada bonds are, are, are bonds with a promise to pay by the government versus the Canada mortgage bonds, I guess implicitly a promise to pay, but then further backed by the registered mortgages on title. So you have almost additional security. So in theory, you might even say the Canada mortgage bond would be safer than the Government of Canada bond if you could go that
1: far. Aaron, that is absolutely true. You would think that all else being equal, the Canada Mortgage Bond, even facing the collapse of the Canadian government and a lack of an ability to pay, would then be supported further by an entire pile of mortgages, claims on, on residential properties or commercial properties, as the case may be. The reason they trade at a higher rate than an equivalent Government of Canada bond is probably attributable more to liquidity. So there's a lot more trading activity in Government of Canada bonds than there is in Canada mortgage bonds. And so as a result, investors will demand a small premium for the CMB bond despite its security because it's not traded as actively. And so we characterize that as a liquidity premium as opposed to a credit premium, strictly speaking.
2: And is that just simply because it's harder to, to find buyers or sellers, for that matter, if you, you want, want to a get tough, into that tough market? Times, right? is that
1: the in, yeah, you would argue that maybe in tough times, but in practice, it's...
2: No, the volumes are much greater on the Government of Canada bonds, though.
1: Well, marginally so. Okay. I mean, the the five-year CMB, the five-year Canada mortgage bond, is open twice, once in March, once in June, and then a new issue will be done for the uh, September, and right. December timeframe. Two issues combined, you usually end up with about a $10 billion benchmark. That's a pretty liquid bond. Mm. Anyway, I've probably gotten off track here yeah, a sorry, little I, bit. That was
2: my fault. That was my <laughs> fault. Okay. That's okay, so the credit spread. So so back, sorry, Stephen well, had his brilliant idea during well, the here's credit the crisis. Thing.
1: Based on the conversation we just said, if you were an investor with $100 million to spend and you could buy a five-year government of Canada bond at X percent or a five-year Canada mortgage bond at X plus 10 basis points, all else being equal, take the extra 10 basis points. What happened during the liquidity crisis is as credit spreads generally gapped out, the CMB kind of got swept up with it. It's the old baby with the bathwater concept. That spread of, say seven to 10 basis points over government of Canada's quickly went to 20 and then to 25, which was around the time Stephen made his first visit to my office. He's probably going to kill me for telling you about this.
0: <laughs> when you say quickly, are we talking days or weeks or what sort of time frame? Of
1: oh, things were moving very swiftly. I think in the initial weeks, if I reflected back on it, it happened slower. There was an opportunity maybe to get some good things done, but I don't think any of us anticipated where that crisis was going. So timelines are fuzzy to me now, but
2: certainly early on. So this is sort of September 2008, like Bear Stearns oh, bankruptcy boy. was really yeah. the point of, okay, we've got a crisis on our hands, but.
1: I don't want to commit. I'd have to go so back probably, and look at the timelines. a little bit. Yeah. Okay. okay. Anyway, Okay. keep going. It's, you know, it's a fuzz now, but, you know, enough that I still wake up screaming from time to time <laughs> thinking about it. But Stephen came into the office and said, here's what we should do. We should buy a billion CMBs and fund it by shorting a billion five-year candidates and just take the 25 basis point spread and carry it home. Now, there is friction involved with the repo activity. You're going to have to borrow the government candidates that you've shorted and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But keeping things simple seems like a great, hey, pick a free 25 basis points for five years for no credit difference. Anyway, I reminded him at that point that we aren't really a prop trading shop. And he agreed, probably not the right thing to do, which was just as well because several days, maybe a week later, he came back because the spreads weren't 25 anymore. Now they were 50. And he said, oh, it was a good thing we didn't do that trade. But if you liked it at 25, you got to love it at 50. And we debated it a little bit back and forth. And at that stage, I think I dug up some wisdom that was shared with me by one of my, uh, Managers at Dominion Securities back in the day, and it went something like this The road to hell is paved with positive carry. (laughs) And I've learned that the hard way more than once throughout my career. So I said, No, no, I don't think this is the right trade still. And he agreed. Yet another week later, he came back, and now the spreads were 75. And he was itching. Surely we've got to do this. And we all knew this is the thing. We all knew this was the right thing to do. And it wasn't just in CMB. We could look at the CMBS market. The B pieces, even the the double A and single A pieces in the CMBS market were trading at extraordinary spreads. And those guys that were brave of heart went out and bought them. And I know the guys at IMC did a, a great job. I think they built a business out of buying some of those hmm. CMBS pieces in those days, and they were rewarded for it. Unfortunately, somewhere around Canada's plus 100, the CMB spread trade started reversing course, and sadly... We never did quite execute in our billion for a billion trade, <laughs> but uh, I might have retired on it had we done it. <laughs> wow!
0: And just uh, I guess for clarity about how this relates to mortgages, uh, we price insured apartment deals over the Canada Mortgage Bond, and we price conventional deals over the Government of Canada Bond. So people are wondering how this relates to you know, what, how, what, how Jason's desk uh, interacts with uh, you know Aaron's and mine. That's kind of the uh, relationship between the two.
1: Yeah, so the Canada Mortgage Bond became a key thing for us, and it came along at the right time. I think it was beginning of January, beginning of 2007, when First National received its NHA MBS issuer status. What does that stand for? Uh, The NHA is the National Housing Act, and it lays out the regulations related to mortgage insurance. And MBS is mortgage-backed securities. So it's basically assembling pools of mortgages that are insured pursuant to the National Housing Act. And the NHA-MBS was great. However, a raw NHAMBS pool is something we call a pass-through. So it's amortizing, it's prepayable, and it's a monthly pay. And investors in Canada tend to be a little bit quirky. It's a little bit different. As a result, the liquidity isn't great or traditionally hasn't been great. What people prefer is what they're accustomed to. Like the Government of Canada bond, it pays a semi-annual coupon instead of monthly, and it is a bullet maturity. You don't receive your principal until the maturity of the bond. What the Canada Mortgage Bond does is it allows us to take our insured mortgages, put them into NHA MBS pools, which are somewhat liquid, Mm -hmm. and then we can take our NHA MBS pools along with other participants in the market and offer them for sale to the Canada housing trust, Canada housing trust, which is administered by CMHC takes in the NHA MBS pools and then funds that purchase of MBS by offering to the market, Canada mortgage bonds, Canada mortgage bonds are that much more appealing to the investor now because they are converted into a semi-annual bullet pay bond. So the reasonable question is, how do you take prepaying monthly pay mortgages and turn them into a semi-annual bullet bond? And that's done in a swap in the background where cash flows are being exchanged by participants in the market to convert the cash flows from one to the other. The great outcome for the likes of First National and for our borrowers is that the simpler the cash flow, the lower the yield the investor requires. So if you started off with a singular mortgage, an investor may require Canada's plus 150 basis points. If you put a bunch of those mortgages together and offer them a tradable security in the form of an NHA-MBS pool, they might say, well, that's great. I'll take that at Canada's plus 75. And then if you go a step further and put those MBS pools into the Canada mortgage bond and deliver to them something that they're really comfortable with, like a tradable semi-annual bullet bond that the CMB is, Now you're into the Canada's plus 35. So it allows us to access the funding, which turns into pretty solid mortgage rates.
0: It's substantially lower than uh, options to be priced over the government of Canada. Say that one again? Uh, uh, Interest rates that are substantially lower than would be done on a non-insured basis. uh, Oh, understood. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Of course, I guess uh, as a borrower, you might have the option to pursue your funding on a conventional basis.
0: Yeah, very few do, but it does. Yeah,
1: it does.
2: yeah well, right. And if you do the comparison to CMBS, which is sort of uninsured right. mortgage-backed security, so the commercial mortgage-backed security, I think like they're trading more at sort of the Canada's plus 200 to 220 range, right? So you're talking about 130, 150 basis points spread between the two right yeah. now. Right now, anyway. And that, that is, quite frankly, liquidity risk or liquidity pricing, because there's only one issuer of CMBS right now in Canada.
1: Yeah, CMBS has been one of the lingering casualties of the liquidity crisis in Canada and it's another great example of just perhaps a lack of understanding among the investors the history and performance of CMBS in Canada is extraordinary and
0: especially as compared to the US counterparts well right?
1: certainly and yeah. I mean across all mortgage categories but CMBS in particular I think the last deal which was the real T deal issued by RBC I mean, credit to them for issuing the deal. I'm still I'm still amazed at the spread that that ultimately was issued at. And the investors that are willing to do the time to understand it have been rewarded because they're buying those bonds cheap. Mm-hmm. It's a great investment.
0: And as a comparison point, I actually read in a report earlier today that the U.S. market for CMBS is somewhere around $95 billion in 2017. If you take the usual math of Canada versus the States and cut it down by a tenth, you should have a Canadian market of 9.5 billion and we're nowhere.
2: Well, I think last year that. it might have been 800 million, right? Like, So we're one one hundredth, less than a hundredth the size of the, the American market. Part of that is the number of players too, though, right? I mean, in the U.S. you have a couple hundred sort of mortgage lenders, active mortgage lenders across the country. You know, in Canada you might have 20, right? Five major banks, six major banks, not a hundred banks, right? Like it's just a different environment.
1: I think it's that combined with culture. You know, I think that there is a deeper culture of exploring alternative investments in the US, a lot more conservative here in Canada. So even if you were to remove the headcount factor and just go in for what people are willing to do, the NHA-MBS market is a great example. So forget about CMBS. The NHA-MBS market, we're talking about AAA securities explicitly guaranteed by the government of Canada. And I struggle to understand why the list of investors that are buying that product is, you know, no longer than maybe 2025. Are they all Canadian players typically? I think typically one of the challenges has been that because NHAMBS is a pass-through security and it's prepayable, it's difficult for a U.S. investor with a U.S. dollar mandate to hedge the currency risk the CMB might make a more manageable investment for them because it's semi-annual and it's a bullet pay. So they know right up front what their cash flows are and they can hedge off their currency risk precisely. So the MBS is a bit more of a challenge.
2: Do you want to get into, well, where do you want to go, Jason? What else do you want to talk about? I mean, we can go into different, different bases, different indices, CDOR, BAs. I don't know if you want to talk about that kind of stuff. Swaps, we can, we can discuss swaps.
1: Well, sure. I guess you mentioned CDOR and BAs. One of my Pet peeves, perhaps, is the way the terms CDOR and BA are used quite interchangeably. And while they kind of refer to the same thing, they are different products. So, CDOR is an index, it's published every single day. And whether you're borrowing or lending money for some sort of adjustable rate term, you're usually referring to CDOR as the reference point to set your coupon. I'm amazed at how many mortgage documents and loan agreements I've seen where that's referred to as BAs plus. And you need to be careful because a BA is actually an instrument being issued by a bank as opposed to CDOR, which is an index being set in a very transparent way. Who
2: governs CDOR? Isn't it a
1: collection, of a collection of... Well, yeah, CDOR is set every day. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what authority receives. I should know this, boy. The There are a group that. of participating banks. <laughs> Telling all my friends. <laughs> participating banks who submit a rate for the one month, two month, three month in the various settings of CDOR every day. The highest and lowest are cast out as outliers and the rest is averaged and posted. So Again, I'm not sure who's exactly responsible for keeping track of it. There's been some controversy. If you've heard or paid attention at all, there was some controversy about the LIBOR setting, Mm -hmm. which is the CEDOR equivalent for U.S. dollars. And there's also a conversation actively happening in Canada to replace the CEDOR setting. So whether it's LIBOR or CEDOR, there was some concern that the banks that were contributing the data to set the rate were somehow manipulating it in their favor. I'll be honest, it's tough to see how that's possible. The swap market, which would refer to CDOR or LIBOR in the case of the US, for trillions and trillions of dollars worth of contracts, well, the banks are on both sides of those. You know, if a bank's got a trillion dollars worth of swaps going one way, they've got a trillion going the other way, just offsetting their risk. So I don't know the background and I didn't spend a lot of time following it, but CDOR, I guess, will be replaced at some point in the in the near distant future. Um,
2: just before we go on, what does CDOR stand for?
1: Uh, there's something to debate about that. Let's see, the uh, Canadian dollar offered rate, I okay. believe is what it stands And BA stands for? Banker's acceptance. Right.
0: And for your average commercial borrower, how does that connect to them?
1: I think that the connection, I think the connection or the... The word of advice would be just make sure when you're talking about a mortgage or a loan agreement that you know what you're talking about. Your reference point should probably be CDOR. Mm-hmm. It's transparent. It's set every day. You can look it up and see it. If you agree to a loan based on BAs, you may be subject to a less definitive base rate, which could be the function of where your individual bank happens to be issuing bankers' acceptances to investors that day. Right. So there could be a a variance. For instance, BAs would be issued by the Royal Bank at a much lower rate than a smaller institution.
2: Right, certainly. And just for context, in the commercial mortgage financing world, often you'll see conventional or uninsured development financing priced over BAs or CDOR. So it is prevalent in the marketplace when you're doing a development. I mean, a lot of the financing that's done by the banks for some of the major developments that's happening across the country are all BA-based with a spread on top.
0: I've always heard it quoted as BAs, never over CEDOR. So it's funny you mentioned that. So I'm
1: pretty sure that everybody's quoting BAs is talking about CEDOR. And so I always find it surprising though that there's this vagueness out there in something as significant as some of these contracts. Are you talking about a few
0: basis points difference potentially between the two?
1: No, I would say that you're talking closer to 10 or 12. So I think the key thing is that a BA represents the rate at which a bank might be looking to raise funds. So they'll issue a banker's acceptance to the market, and they're going to be raising money by doing that. The CDOR, or is the Canadian dollar offered rate, is technically the offered side of the market where one bank might be willing to lend funds to another. Now, that's a loose description, which may or may not hold in terms of its practical application, but that's the idea. So there's a bit of a bid-offer spread mm. between where people typically think of a BA trading. Now, of course, BAs have a two-way market, bids and offers, but when you talk about what's your BA rate, you're thinking about where the bank's willing to raise money by issuing BAs, and you know, Cdor is more of an offered rate. So you'd likely
2: never see a situation where BAs would be below Cdor.
1: Mm. In fact, usually would be below Cdor.
2: So the BAS would be below yeah, CEDOR. Oh, okay, so yeah, you're saying, right? Yeah, so the other way around, you'd actually never see, likely, li- unlikely to see CEDOR below BAS.
1: That's right. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Can we talk about uh, swaps? Sure.
1: I guess that's a segue from CEDOR.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, just uh, given that. Again, for larger loans, you do seem to see swaps being involved. So, can you do the, the layman's version of swaps?
2: Yeah, and, and just for context, but I'll set you up, Jason. We um, I was talking to a investment banker at CIBC the other day, and he said that the request for interest rate swaps on development, real estate development, has skyrocketed over the last couple of months, and that is a direct relation to the the rising interest rate environment and developers looking to hedge their interest rate risks. So, entering into these sort of fixed rate Rate swaps to protect themselves from what they believe to be, you know, significant interest rate rising over the course of their development period. So if they're, you know, let's say they're building a, you know, a condo tower that's going to take them three or four years, they want to lock in today to protect themselves against what the rates will be when they finally either term out for a, for a fixed rate mortgage or sell the units.
1: Right. So, I mean, swaps simply put are just that transforming a series of adjustable rate cash flows into fixed rate cash flows and as a developer you'd like that certainty perhaps of knowing what your payments will be going through time especially in a rising rate environment as you say so i guess there's two ways that that a borrower would use a swap if you are in that development phase and you currently have an adjustable or floating rate loan which is going to be growing through time as you move through your development process, you might have an arrangement where the lender is providing you funds at, say, CDOR plus some spread, and you know that there's a risk that that coupon gets higher and higher as CDOR rises, as the Bank of Canada continues rising, uh, increasing interest rates. What you could do is you could go back to your lender or to another capital markets <laughs> operator as a third party, show them the stream of principal cash flows. Show them that you're borrowing $10 million today, $20 million in six months, and so on and so on. This
0: will run in line with your construction schedule, essentially. Exactly.
1: Okay. And what you would do is you would arrange to pay them the floating rate that you're obligated to... Uh, pardon me, you would arrange to pay them a fixed rate on those growing cash flows in exchange for them paying you the floating rate that you owe to your lender. And so you've transformed that uncertainty into a a certain rate. Now you might question, well, who knows what's the equivalency here? How do you know what fixed rate is fair relative to that uncertain future of floating rates? And so there's a, this is going to get a little bit awkward for a minute, but I'll try to keep it short. You can always determine what the forward interest rate will be for a future period of time using the current yield curve. And in simple terms- Did you just
2: say you can predict where interest rates are going?
1: Uh-huh. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sorry. No. Everybody uh, started paying attention all time. <laughs> Wait, what did he what say? What you can do is you can always predict where interest rates are meant to be based on the current term structure of interest rates. And curiously or not so curiously, the actual forward curve tends to be one of the poorest indicators of where interest rates will actually be. So explain that to me. Anyway, but I mean, the simplest example is, uh, you know, you want to invest some money for two years and you've got two investment options. You've got a one-year investment and you've got a two-year investment. Well, you know that there's an investment that you can make one year from now for a one-year term that if you could agree to today in combination with your one-year investment done immediately should make you indifferent to doing a two-year investment. So you now know, and I'm I'm, I'm doing those quote things with my finger, you know where one-year rates need to be one year from now, given all the information available to you. So when you're building a swap, you can forecast what those forward short-term rate resets are going to be. It's an approach called bootstrapping. Anyway, what you're able to do is build the entire future of your floating rate payments and then you present value those all the way back to the future using some rate that will make it equivalent to a fixed rate and these future floating, floating rates. rates. So you're just setting the two, the two cash flows, the fixed stream versus the increasing, floating rate,
2: Increasing floating rate.
1: And you're setting the present values equal to each other.
2: Based on different rates. Yeah, right. and
1: so you, you solve for the fixed rate.
2: So, and, there we, we, and there will always be a premium based on just on the curve, right?
0: Right, so... To make it profitable for the swap provider. Or at least eliminate the risk or That's limit about, the risk. It's not
1: about profit. I mean, technically speaking, the fixed rate and the floating rate side are neutral. So at time zero, there's no value in the swap for either side. They are valued as equivalent. Setting aside some risk adjustments that a bank might make, I mean, technically speaking, both sides of the swap are equivalent. Once you move through time and the interest rate curve changes and forward expectations change, one side or the other becomes more valuable now. So for the purposes
2: of our clients that would be looking to do that sort of fixed swap, forward fixed swap, what happens if interest rates don't rise to them? So let's say they think rates are going to rise 100 basis points and they end up staying flat. So in the two-year time when it goes to, I, I, don't know, I don't know what the lingo is, but you're exiting or terminating the swap, are you out money because it hasn't risen, or do you, are you making money because it hasn't risen?
1: Well, here's the thing. If rates are completely unchanged, if, say, you, were in a, you had a three-year fix for floating swap, and three years from now, the yield curve was precisely the same as it was at time zero, then you would have done well to have not swapped it. Okay, because the expectation was that rates were moving higher. A positively sloped yield curve would suggest that rates are going to be moving higher. If rates haven't moved higher, then yes, I guess you would have been better off continuing to pay the floating rate.
2: Right, because you would have been paying a higher interest rate at that fixed amount, just by virtue of that present value of the curve.
1: Yeah, right. Say yes. yes. Say yes. Yeah, yeah. this is the good kind of thing that starts getting pretty twisted. Yeah, no, sorry. Hurry. If you're
2: listening and you're confused, don't worry. We all are.
1: <laughs> well, Jason's not. Jason's but, uh, not. Well, I know what I'm saying. <laughs> I think. I think. There's inevitably one or two quantitative people on the line thinking, well, this guy that's doesn't no know what he's talking about. about. Yeah. I do mostly. You can email him at, no, I'm just, I won't do all, that. All, <laughs> matters, I, all that matters is that I, I think that I know more about it than anyone else here at First National, Absolutely. which means no one else can call me out <laughs> on my stuff. So,
0: and If we were to simplify it in terms of, you know, you're doing this today for a borrower is there a rough guideline for the premium they're paying in terms of protecting against that risk? Right,
1: so I'm going to pause on the premium minute minute and, and just go back to the last point from Aaron, which was, you know, do you win, do you lose, do you end up ahead or behind? When you make the decision to enter into that swap, you're not making a play on interest rates. You're not trading interest rates. I mean, you are to a degree because if you don't do the swap, you're betting that rates aren't going higher or that they're not going to go higher as quickly as the current yield curve predicts. And if you make if you do put the swap on, maybe you're predicting that they will go higher as predicted or even higher. higher. But ideally as a mortgage borrower, you're just you're making a decision about what you're comfortable with. And if you price out the swap and determine that you can exchange your CDOR plus a spread funding for the next 3 years for the certainty of a coupon call it, I don't know, three and a half percent, and that makes sense for you and it fits into your plans, then do it and put it to bed and stop worrying about it. I mean, if you wake up every morning and you check and you see whether it was the right thing to do, you'll hang yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, if you if you live this whole thing with with hindsight, inevitably you're going to have decisions you regret. So it's really about doing something that lets you rest easy as opposed to, did I win or did I lose? Yeah. And as far as the premium goes, there really isn't a premium. I think when you think about premium, what you're talking about is the idea of a forward fix on a rate into the future where the forward rate is higher than the spot rate. And so to put that in context, say you have your three-year construction period on a development and you're quite happy to go floating During that three-year period, the principal balance is growing and you don't don't want to go into the complexity of an accreting swap or anything like that. But you are worried that three years from now when you're done and it's time to take out your five or ten-year fixed-term funding, that rates will have run off on you. So what you can do is you can do another kind of swap that is the principal will be fixed. It's not going to be a growing principal amount. It's going to be three years starting in the future and then five years for your full loan amount or a loan amount, a principal amount that actually is amortizing down now Mm -hmm. with your mortgage. Now, if you could get a five-year mortgage today at, call it 5%, when you calculate what that forward starting, that three-year forward starting five-year rate would be, it's going to be, what did I say? 5% was Mm -hmm. today. That's the spot rate. The forward rate is going to be something like, say, 5.5% that 50 basis points isn't a fee or a charge or a premium. It's like that earlier example. That's the reality where the guy who's lending you the money three years from now for five years can look at the yield curve and say, well, three years from now, I can look at eight-year rates right now, combine that with three-year rates and calculate where the three-year forward five-year rate should be. Mm -hmm. So it's not a premium or a penalty. And I think a lot of guys look at that Hedge adjustment. I mean, here we we call it a, a hedge fee uh, mm-hmm. for for some of our borrowers, but it's not it's not a premium. It's just the cost of money it's just a it's price. the cost of time. Yeah. does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. yeah it does. no,
2: not at all. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll just keep moving.
1: so the, <laughs> the, the the premium, the difference between the forward starting fixed rate on your mortgage and the spot rate where if you were ready to borrow today, it's not a premium, it's a function of the steepness of the yield curve. Yeah, and, I, and not surprisingly, I'm sure to you, if you had a perfectly flat yield curve, the five-year rate three years from now would be the exact same as... Right,
2: and I think that's what our if you're a borrower looking at this, what you're really doing is you're saying, okay, where are our rates today? Let's call them 5%. And do I think it'll be greater than five and a half percent in three years? And so that delta is that 50 cents. And so you do the mental gymnastics of do I think rates will go up more or less than that 50 basis points <laughs> or whatever the case may be.
1: You know, I'm always amazed when our commercial underwriters and lenders and sales guys come over and say, oh, I've got my borrower. He's you know, wringing his hands together. He doesn't know if he should fix his rate. Maybe he's, he's going to wait, see if he can squeeze out another five basis points. And my advice is always the same. Which of the two outcomes is going to piss you off more? You could wait and watch interest rates go another 20 beeps higher and then fix your mortgage. Or you could fix your mortgage today and have interest rates fall by another 20 basis points. Do one of those two outcomes really make you more upset? And I think everybody, if they really thought about it, not fixing your rate because you wanted to save the hedge cost and watching rates run away on you, because the thing is, to hedge your your mortgage for a month might cost two to four basis points, and I can tell you, in a month, five and ten year yields can go twenty five or thirty basis Quickly. points in a heartbeat. Yeah, and so, they just
2: did. They just did recently.
1: So uh, I'd say don't sweat that last half basis point. If you're if you like where the rates are, get it done. It's
2: funny when I was working direct with clients. There were two different types of borrowers. There were the ones that were always trying to play the rate and calling me every minute, saying, "Where is it now? Where is it now? Where is it now?" And they were always stressed, and they always seemed to make the wrong decision. They always ended up, you know, not hitting the mark. And then there are the guys that just say, "Yeah, the day before it closes, lock my rate. You know, bygones be bygones. Whatever the rate is, that's what I deserve to get." And they almost always end up with the better rate. Like it's just, it is that sort of natural approach to things that end up. You yeah know, being one of my the one of my
1: favorites is the uh, the borrowers who all of a sudden become fixed income experts <laughs> <laughs> I've had cases where uh, one thing that people get confused about is the use of the ten year government of Canada and so when people talk about the ten year government of Canada, you can be talking about it two ways. you can talk about the prevailing benchmark ten year Canada bond, which Right now, I don't think it's rolled over yet. It might yet be the June 2027 Canada's, which would be the bond that the market would refer to as the 10-year bond. Or maybe they have rolled it forward and they're already talking about the June 2028 bond. But in either case, it's not 10 years exactly. Mm -hmm. You might also refer to the 10-year Canada as the interpolated rate to an actual 10-year term using the available... Government of Canada yeah, bonds.
2: And the yield and curve. And so,
1: I mean, I've certainly had borrowers come back and say that I was trying to rip them off because I was quoting them a rate that was not the rate in the Globe and Mail the following morning. And it's like, well, the rate in the Globe and Mail is actually a nine-year bond. Or
2: nine-year, uh, four months, or it's whatever not, it is. It's yeah. not
1: the 10-year bond. That's not what we were pricing your mortgage over. But the best one was a guy who actually faxed over a copy of the 10-year bond rates that he was being offered by his retail investment advisor. So these were the rates where his advisor was willing to sell to him government of Canada bonds. So of course, because he's trying to sell you the bonds, he wants to give you a low rate because it's in his favor to sell them to you at a higher price and a lower Mm -hmm. yield. Of course, I'm trying to just lock you in where I can go and I can actually sell bonds in the market myself. And so we were talking about a confusion around bid offer, let alone the fact that he was getting a retail offer. So I think the solution was I told the underwriter to go back and tell him that tell you what, I'll do a billion bonds at that price with him if that's where he wants to trade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did that make it go away? That made it go away. Yeah. <laughs> it might have been the last mortgage we did with him, but it made him go away. You made your point though. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The Bank of Canada overnight rate. They just recently had another round of no change. But last year, there was a, a handful of changes. Just I guess I'll back it up one more step for anybody that doesn't know the Bank of Canada overnight rate is the rate at which banks will lend money to each other only.
1: Not even. It's the last, the sort of the lender of last resort rate where banks might be able to access funds from the Bank of Canada. Okay. But it's an important reference because the prime rate tends to price off of it. Cedar tends to price off of it. So it is the Bank of Canada's way of signaling to the market where it wants rates. So if the Bank of Canada did move up another 25 basis points and the SCED1 banks didn't move the prime rate up with them, the bank would be very unhappy with uh, the Bank of Canada, that, that is, would be very unhappy with the Sked 1 banks because they depend on the banks through the prime rate to communicate and facilitate that change in policy.
0: And last year, the low point was, I think, 2.75 on prime. Currently, we're at 3.45. And that was mostly driven by Bank of Canada overnight rate increases.
1: Right. So where are we right now? 3.7. 3.45. Three point four five. We're at three point 4. four five oh, okay. right now. Yeah, yeah.
0: You've been out of the trenches too long, Aaron.
2: I thought it went up again. I don't know. <laughs> That's just the credit guy in me.
1: No, no, yeah. rates are not, rates are too low. Anyway, so we were talking about yeah. So we we hit the pause button with the Bank of Canada. I think that there's two things happening. We've got a good labor market right now. Uh, employment in Canada, I think, is a, possibly a 40 year high employment. That is not unemployment. And inflation is maybe flirting with the upper bound at the bank of Canada's target of 2%, but not out of control. And I think the thing that's keeping them sitting on their hands right now is uncertainty around trade. I mean, it's a global economy Mm -hmm. and uncertainty around the future of NAFTA and uncertainty around relations between the U S and China from a trade perspective. So there's all kinds of factors at play. So
2: yeah, it was a bit surprising that they didn't proceed with another increase this time around. I mean, at, least, at least the language sort of end of last year, early this year was that they were going to be fairly aggressive with it. But I, th- that new developments have occurred in the last couple of months from a, right. from a global perspective. Heading
1: into the meeting, it was almost unanimous that there would be no change at that meeting. Yeah. So we'll see. There's, there's definitely, I mean, I think the, on balance of probabilities, I think the markets do definitely have at least another hike priced in before the end of this year.
0: And when is the next announcement coming up? Do you know? I don't know the date
1: offhand, but they tend to be six weeks or so apart. So, so soon. Soon. Well, yeah. I mean, they're never yeah. that far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since they had a surprise meeting. You know, it's it, when I first started in fixed income, the Fed and the U.S. and the Bank of Canada didn't actually have fixed meeting dates. So it was a little bit more of a—you'd wander into the office one day and spill your coffee all over your lap when you know Greenspan moved fifty basis points out of the blue. So I'm quite a ready for it. Has there been a time?
2: Ever been a time when banks haven't followed suit, or let's say, you know, Prime was or uh, Bank of Canada raised rates by a quarter point and they only went up fifteen basis points, something like that.
1: Yeah. So last year I wasn't it? well no it was uh, all the way back into the liquidity crisis the time following it when the bank of canada was sharply dropping rates they had gotten to the point though where they wanted to create stimulus for the broader economy to help move through the liquidity crisis but there was already a lot of chatter in the media around housing housing affordability and real estate prices and It was a unique time where, despite what I mentioned earlier about the Bank of Canada depending on the the banks to transmit policy through the prime rate on two, I believe, successive rate cuts of 25 basis points. In each case, the Sked 1 banks only cut by 15 basis points. So there are those that thought that was the banks putting extra basis points in their pocket, and maybe it worked out well for the banks, but there was a case where the Bank of Canada was quite happy that the full 25 basis points wasn't transmitted through to the retail borrower. Sure, it would have just further
2: amplified the, the real estate price right. in intensity that we were experiencing.
1: And anticipating the follow-on question, no, they haven't given those 15 basis points back on the way on the higher. Way up, sure. I think those are permanently baked in such that the basis between the Bank of Canada rate And the prime rate are now permanently wider. Which is not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. You know what? It's just a notional reference point. I mean, prime is prime. In the meantime, the discount to prime or the premium over prime that the bank offers as its services at bounce around. So you can't get too wound up over the difference between the Bank of Canada rate and the prime rate because it's really the spread relative to prime that the banks are offering their services at that matters. Right.
0: So I want to ask uh, a question that if we were not recording, Jason would probably throw me out of his office. But it relates, of course, to Bank Canada overnight rate, and the prime rate, where are interest rates headed? I know he uh, hates this question, but we
1: already I, said yeah. he, he actually knows. He can tell <laughs> yeah. us. Well, yeah, you know, we could look at the curve right now. I could tell you precisely where they're supposed to be. You know, I am going to take the fifth on that. You know, and I, I kid around, but there's no good that can come of me trying to predict rates and you know a lot of people said you'll be wrong me, no matter what <laughs> I'd be wrong you know and if I knew I sure as heck wouldn't be here talking to you two fine fellows <laughs> you'd be making
0: billion dollar deals with uh, Steve Smith again <laughs> yes yeah. I'd, be tra- I'd be
1: doing billion dollar uh, credit trades yeah from
2: your, from your yacht in the middle of the Pacific Ocean so you got no jurisdiction
1: yeah, looking good Valentine
0: yeah. But, yeah I thought I'd have to ask though but uh, it's about the answer I expected <laughs> the one we usually get
2: <laughs> Jason usually has more profanities when he answers that that question, but he's, <laughs> he's keeping it PG for our
1: listeners. I, I know I dropped one F-bomb earlier. I don't know if that gets bleeped out or not in my it'll, origin it'll story, get, it'll get beeped out but sure. it felt it needed to be conveyed <laughs> because the gravity of the situation Understood. when he happened Understood. upon me sitting in his chair was such...
0: We don't want to offend all the uh, young children listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <you know? laughs> yeah, the eight-year-olds
2: that woke up this morning and wanted to know about what did the treasury guy have to say.
0: Yeah. Can we, uh, just to to finish off can we talk a bit about first national navigating the crisis in 2008 because that would have been during your tenure of course
1: yeah i uh, well i said earlier maybe a little bit facetiously but you know you can still wake up screaming it was a it was a terrifying time things were changing so quickly and as a non deposit taking mortgage finance company At the end, we usually are depending on a third party for our cash. We're not like a bank, obviously. We don't have deposits sitting in checking and savings accounts. And things were moving quickly. And some of our most trusted counterparts started backing off. And it wasn't a reflection of First National or of our assets. It was just the condition of the market. Fortunately, given the diversity of programs we had, the quality of the assets. And that is to say that those assets we had on the balance sheet that needed to be funded were overwhelmingly CMHC insured. So between CMHC introducing something called the IMPP or the Insured Mortgage Purchase Program, where they stepped in and said, hey, pull up all your insured mortgages, we'll buy them. And they put together this auction process where you could go in and sell your your mortgage-backed securities. That kept lenders like us fluid and liquid, let us keep lending, kept the, the whole market going. We were, Canada that is, the envy of, I think, the civilized financial markets through the crisis. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we have insurance on the majority of the mortgages in this country. And I'm disheartened by some of the changes that have been made by the Department of Finance in recent years, which is moving our mortgage market away from government-guaranteed default insurance. Because it was that very thing that I think saved us during the crisis. And should the same thing occur again, we're not going to be able to go to the well as easily because we're going to be dealing with mortgages that aren't already guaranteed by the government.
0: And that would have attracted attention from the international markets at that point in terms of Liquidity, availability?
1: Well, I think that the attention from the international markets initially was, wow, they got a good thing going on over there. Look how smooth the financial markets in Canada have weathered this. It was in the years that followed, I think, where housing in Canada really started to take off from a value standpoint. And Canadians started levering up more than we'd ever seen them before that people started to get cold feet from a, an international perspective.
0: And have, have any other countries maybe envious of us in the bad times moved their own systems towards uh, similar protection or uh, since it's a good times again.
1: You know, forgot. I have to admit to the extent that first national is so focused on Canada, I tend to become very ethnocentric and where I, where I put my attention. I don't spend enough time looking at other environments and other jurisdictions to see what they're doing. So I can't really say.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, uh, I'll end up talking to, to us borrowers and they'll, talk about projects down there. And I've got very little, I- anything, anything intelligent to say other than that's a very large deal. And no, we can't do any lending down there. Everything there tends to be a lot faster, a lot looser and uh, a different environment, but uh, yeah, I don't know much about it.
1: Yeah. So the crisis though, I mean, we came through great. In fact, you know, I remember sitting in my office dreading it thinking, Oh my God, what are we going to do now? I do remember, you know, poor Steven, another Stephen Smith story. He was on vacation when things really went sideways, when the asset-backed commercial paper program started seizing up. He was on vacation in Europe on a, a cruise of some description, and I'm freaking out. And he was remarkably calm to his credit. And I remember him saying to me one evening, guess where I am? And I'm freaking out. <laughs> I don't know. Where are you? I'm on the balcony of my cruise ship having a glass of champagne. I'm freaking out here. What are you talking about <laughs> champagne? But he was cool as a cucumber. And you know, history will show that we made more money in the years that followed the liquidity crisis than ever before because rational minds prevailed. And as everyone else was bailing, and you guys certainly know from the commercial side, the banks sort of put a stopper on lending. And First National stepped into the fray and became what I believe now is the largest CMHC multifamily lender in the mm-hmm. country. Absolutely. Completely yep. changed gears from CMBS to CMHC insured multifamily. And it's just been amazing.
2: Yeah, we were the only ones at the time that were are doing anything, right? There was nobody in the marketplace. It allowed us to introduce ourselves to many
0: new borrowers. There are still good clients today. Right. Hmm. If memory serves correct, we got caught with a fair bit of CMBS on our balance sheet, but that managed to be resolved.
1: Yeah, well, that was one of the greatest interest rate calls ever by Maury. You know, he's he's the king of hindsight when it comes to interest rates. But, you know, we had these mortgages on the balance sheet and they were hedged as they should have been. And Maury at one point decided, you know what, I think we're going to own these mortgages for the long term because it was going to be a while before CMBS offered us the opportunity to fund them. And he quite rightly imagined that this liquidity crisis was going to result in an extended period of relatively low rates. And, you know, he, he, he made the decision to, to turn those into balance sheet assets. We unwound the hedge and he carried those home positively. It was a good call. At the time,
0: though, most of them in, uh- A bit of a nerve-wracking
1: call. Oh, I had him sign a release so that when it went the wrong way, if it did, that he would remember that it was him that made the decision. In fact... You were not liable at all. In fairness, you know, know, uh, Maury's rarely been wrong about rates. He's got a weird 6th sense about it. But I think one day in particular, he did come in and he felt particularly enthusiastic about his views. And I think he wanted to get long or short, whatever it was. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, my job is to stay neutral. But what I can do if you'd like given that it is your company, more or less, we could put on a side trade and assign it to you, and every single day, I'll send you a mark to market, and you can tell me what you want to do with it. And all of a sudden, that level of accountability made him think, well, yeah, that's not, ru- <laughs> that's not what we do here, yeah, is yeah, it? That's, no, no. That's, <laughs>
2: that's funny. So you've got two stories of each one of our owners coming yeah. in, wanting to do some trading, and, and you say think no, 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 no. I'm the rogue. They think I'm the rogue <laughs> trader. I'm glad they both decided against it in the long run.
1: Right.
0: We would like to end off by asking the question of if you can invest in one asset class in one city, what would it be? And it's a more interesting question to you, I guess, because you don't spend a lot of your time thinking about you know particular asset classes. You're thinking more about bond yields, I assume. That's what I see you doing in your office. But uh, where, would you, where would you place an imaginary million dollars
1: right now? You know, in fairness, I'll disclose that I was told this question would come up at the end, but I haven't actually thought about it as I was meant to in the back of my mind. Just say
2: apartment uh, buildings.
1: That's okay. Apartment yeah. buildings. Yeah. Well, CBC well apartments. You know, <laughs> I, I was going to stick with what I know yeah. and what I know is that even setting aside Canada mortgage bonds, if you were looking for something that was really high quality but you were still getting a terrific price on, NHAMBS, and to put it in context, a five-year pool of residential mortgages securitized and guaranteed by the government of Canada still trades in the range of government of Canada's plus
2: 50. So that's 3.15%, 3.5%. So it's not
1: sexy. You know, it's not Bitcoin. It's not champagne in Monte Carlo. Asset class in a city might work. But I tell you, it's a sure thing that comes cheap. And I still marvel at the fact that people aren't lined up to buy it.
2: You sleep like a baby if you had it.
1: I wouldn't worry about a thing.
2: In context, there are people out there still buying real estate with three caps on it. So the same return, you know, if you want to compare apples to apples, but quite a different risk profile.
0: And now you're in a ton of markets spread around risk and Yeah,
2: right. And, yeah. That's right. And you're dealing with, you know, managing the asset and, you know, the interest rate risks and rental increases risk and rental decrease risk.
0: Are you deterring people from buying real estate errors? Not at a three
2: cap. Don't buy it at a three-cap. That's what I'm saying. When interest, rate, when interest rates are four and a
0: half percent, that's not a good that's not a good trade. And it's worth mentioning for the half of the audience that was not confused and really enjoyed this.
1: Or is still awake and listening. Yeah.
0: That Jason does a similar version of this in a written form on a it's supposed to be weekly basis, but maybe it averages it a little less, but it's very succinct, very readable, you know, five minute read every Friday and puts you right on top of the market. We'll put a link in the show notes to sign up for that. And you'll get a lot of the indexes we we're talking about today. You'll get those rates, but more importantly, you'll get Jason's thoughts and comments on, you know, what it means. So we'll put out a link. It's worth checking out. And he operates there under the, under the uh, pseudonym treasury guy, rather than his, uh, his given name. Justin. That's right, Justin. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank the listeners for listening as always. I want to thank Jason for spending his time today to, to go through this. It's always always enlightening to listen to what's going on in uh, his side of the office. If you enjoy the episode, subscribe on iTunes, tell a friend, and see you at the next one. Thanks, Jason. Thank you.